The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. This message has personally challenged me and wrecked me in all the best ways. And don't you love it when you come to the Word of God and you just let the Word of God teach you and mold you and convict you and transform you. Isn't that wonderful when, when that can happen? And, uh, you know, in that time of, of, of anguish in a way, I don't mean that in like a real serious way, but just conviction and growth, um, it just feels as if like the, the joy of the Lord has just hunted me down as, as like a shepherd coming after a sheep who is just learning how to follow the shepherd. And uh, the joy of the Lord has just been so strong on my life, and, and, I, and I just praise the Lord for that. And, um, and I'm hoping that this is going to do the exact same thing for all of us as we look at this passage. If you have your uh, Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to be going through uh, verse 22 all the way through verse 59. So 27 verses of rich, rich Scripture. I have three points I have seven points of application. I am going to labor to get through this in a way that is uh, time appropriate. And um, so with that, I will limit my introductory remarks and just, talk, just refresh our minds as to the context of this, because the context of this is so important in, under, in order to understand how the passage starts out and how it goes through and what Jesus is teaching, because at the beginning of this chapter, we see Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then he walks on water, as we heard Pastor Collins so greatly preach on last week. Um, and then this, which is a teaching on how he is the bread of life. And this is all happening very rapidly. It's all in like a 24-hour period. And so it can, it, it's, almost, it's all, almost one event, really. And uh, we can't preach it as one sermon because it's just too, too long. But this is all essentially one event. And... Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the passage so that we can get a little bit more of the context. I'm not going to read the passages that came before that. Uh, I'm going to start off by reading verse 22 through 34, which is going to be under the, the first heading or the first point, which is Jesus points out wrong motives because they're coming to him. And then he tells them not to work for bread that perishes. So let's just get right into this. Verse 22, on the next day, that is the day after uh, he, he fed the 5,000. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, 
What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So here, this passage sets the scene where all these people who have just been fed by Jesus in the feeding of the 5,000, they come looking for Jesus. And coming and looking at that, just that thing alone, that looks like a really great thing. They come looking for Jesus, and you see other boats coming from Tiberias, almost as if the crowd is growing. And they're looking for him diligently. They don't just seek and then just give up. They're looking for him where they think they will find him. The last place they saw him was right there in the wilderness where they were fed. And they come there, and he's not there. And so they keep searching. And they find him eventually in Capernaum, which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, essentially. And they ask him, how did you come here? And we know from verse 59 that this was actually all coming... uh, to the four in uh, the synagogue. Jesus, is, Jesus has come from Gennesaret all the way over. He walked on the water, and now he's showing up in the synagogue in a public place, and he's teaching. And they say, how did you get here? They're concluding that Jesus got there fast somehow, and they're asking him a very obvious question, but Jesus doesn't answer their question at all. Jesus wastes no time in getting right to the heart of the issue because Jesus doesn't like to talk about things that are in the physical realm, as we've seen before. Jesus likes to go right to the heart and talk about things that are relevant in the spiritual realm. And he says to them, don't labor for food that perishes. And and the fact of the matter is these people were coming and they were following their stomach. In verse 20, and this is in verse 26, in verse 27 through 28, Jesus points out the real spiritual food. They ask what they are to do, and Jesus tells them to believe. And then they ask for a sign. So their belief doesn't come without strings attached. And Jesus doesn't just lead them in the sinner's prayer. Jesus starts teaching about who he is. And many times, a lot of times when we see people seeking for the Lord, we rejoice, right? And that's good because people should be seeking for the Lord. But who are they really seeking? Are they seeking Jesus or are they seeking a Jesus that has been presented to them by the culture of the American church? Are they seeking for a Jesus that they have come up with in their own understanding of what they've heard in the scriptures or their own understanding of the American dream and what it means to be prosperous and to be fed and to understand the scriptures. They ask for manna. So you see a pattern there. They want bread, now they want manna. But in a sense, this is kind of okay, right? Because they're looking for a Messiah that was supposed to be like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. The prophecy was that when the Messiah would come, he would be a prophet like Moses. And what did Moses do? Moses gave them manna. Moses provided for them. These people are needy and they're coming to Jesus. 
But Jesus isn't interested in satisfying their stomach for a, just a season. He's interested in satisfying their heart. And so he goes on and he starts to teach them. First, he corrects them in verse 32. And he says, God gave them manna, not Moses. And now God give it, is giving them true bread. He's changing the subject back to spiritual things. My father gives you true bread from heaven. In verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's revealing himself. He's revealing the plan of God. They had an idea of the plan of God that was so based in, in politics, so based in, in deliverance in a physical realm, so based on getting their needs met in their own stomach. And Jesus is trying to fo focus them back on their heart and their biggest need, which is their need of Christ. They respond, Lord, give us this bread always. That's the perfect answer in my mind. Give us this bread always. It's a prayer to the Messiah who is standing right in front of them and they're asking for the very thing that he's telling them to desire. And we want to rejoice. Sometimes when people come and they're seeking Jesus, we want to rejoice. Sometimes they say, I want to get saved. We say, let's, let, let's pray right now. And we lead that person to the Lord with a, with, with a belief, with a sinner's prayer that is about them asking Jesus into their heart or some kind of language like that. But wait a minute. Who are they asking into their heart? Who are they really believing in? Do they understand who Jesus is? Do they understand Jesus' claims? Do they understand the cost of discipleship? Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. Luke uh, 14, 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, just like here. And, the, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life also, hate meaning not hate with malice, but hate in the sense that you love them so much less that Jesus is so much more glorious that in the world's eyes, it looks like you hate. Like, why would you leave your father and mother to go follow this crazy rabbi? Why would you do that? You must hate your father and mother. Jesus says, unless you hate these things in comparison to the way you love me, you cannot be my disciple. Skipping down to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is Savior, but he is also Lord. You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not also have him as Lord. If you've done that, then what you've done is you have created a different Jesus in your own imagination and said, I believe in that. But Jesus is Lord. That's who he is. That's part of his nature. So if you're accepting him as just a savior, when he's also savior and Lord, then you're accepting somebody completely different. People must understand who Jesus is before they come to him. And that's exactly what he's trying to get to them. Second point is Jesus points to himself as the bread of life. And then there is a following offense. Okay? They're offended by this. We're going to see this in verse 33, or 35 through 46. I'll read this passage. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you 
that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, and of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So verse 35, Jesus claims to come down from heaven. And this is a bit of a bombshell because they're willing to accept what he just said before which is labor for the bread that comes from heaven. That's he who comes down from heaven. They're like, okay, we believe that. Give us this bread. Show us him who came down from heaven. Let's see him come down. And Jesus says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They don't like that. They don't like that because they, they feel like they already know who Jesus is. They feel like their, their concept of Jesus is kind of complete. Okay, he's a, he's, a, he's a great rabbi. He's a great prophet that has come into the world. He's fed 5,000 men besides women and children. He can heal our sicknesses and he can teach words that come from God, but he's the bread that comes out of heaven. And a lot of times, at least in my own experience, when I track with people in the world, and unfortunately sometimes within the church, people already feel like they have their concept of Jesus hardened in cement, and it's not biblical. They have an idea of Jesus that is so much smaller and so much more limited in a box than what the Scripture is actually teaching, that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is Savior and Lord. Jesus is asking for your, your, your heart, your mind, your will, your emotions, He's asking, for, he's asking for your life. He's asking for your career, your relationships, and all the decisions that you make on a daily basis. He is asking for all of that. He wants to be Lord over all of that. Not in a way that's selfish, but in a way that's for you so that you may feed on him and walk in him and grow in him. That's what Jesus wants for us. And we have this small, little God, small, little Jesus, who is there to give us bread, just bread. Wouldn't that be terrible if Jesus just came to give us monetary prosperity? That's not our need, right? People who, who gain riches and gain success in the world's eyes, they'll say, doesn't fulfill. Even Jim Gary said that. He said, I wish everybody could become rich and famous so that they would understand it's not the answer. He's not even a Christian, right? He can tell you that. In verse 36, Jesus knows that this is not what they want to hear. 
He knows that they don't believe in him. He says, you have seen me, yet you do not believe me. They had a, they had a, a measure of faith, but it wasn't a faith in the real Jesus. In verse 39, or 37 through 39, Jesus goes on to teach something intended to encourage his followers. Many times when Jesus is talking, he's talking to the crowds that are rejecting him, but what he's really doing is he's talking to us. He's talking to us who are, who are going to believe in the church for thousands of years, written down in the Bible. He starts speaking to them in a way that is going to encourage his future apostles and the church when they're on the same mission as Jesus and they are rejected just as Jesus is. Do you know that you're going to be rejected if you walk in Christ by the world? Do you know that? You're going to be rejected. You're going to be rejected in a way that hurts you. It's going to grieve you to see people turn away. It may scare you because there's going to be persecution. All who live godly will suffer persecution, the Bible says. In verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come. Not might come, but will come. There's no uncertainty in Jesus that those that are being called by the Father are going to come to him. Right? He's not letting the, the, the crowd's rejection of who he really is rattle him to his core because he's, he's walking in absolute confidence of the sovereignty of God. In verse 38 and 39, for I have come down from heaven, do not, not to do the will of my, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but he will raise it up on the last day. Not a single person will be lost that the Father is drawing. We'll see that a little bit more <clears throat> later. The purpose is to make a way for anyone to come that is believing in Jesus. He's, he's holding his, his arms out wide and saying, come to me, all ye who are laboring, laboring and are heavily laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. Anybody. The way is open to anyone. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall, will not perish but have everlasting life. In verse 41, the Jews are still not happy with the fact that Jesus is calling him the himself the bread of life. Again, this is, this is, they feel like they know him. Is this not the son of Joseph and Mary? You can kind of, you can kind of commiserate with them, right? They didn't think the Messiah was supposed to come from Galilee, right? They didn't know that he was actually born in Bethlehem. He's the bread that comes down out of heaven. Come on. I mean, this is just a little bit too much, and it's going to get more challenging as Jesus continues to preach and teach. It's going to get a lot more challenging. If they're doubting here, they're going to doubt a lot more. He's the bread of life. So many of us think we know Jesus, but we, but we, but we don't. 43 through 44, Jesus again affirms that no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. This is the explanation to his father, followers and everybody who is willing to listen to him is that it's not that he's the rejected one because they know what the Messiah is really supposed to look like. And if you look at it from 30,000 feet, you see a Jewish man coming who's calling himself a, a, a Messiah. He's a rabbi from the wrong area, right? And he's trying to say that he's a Messiah. And who, who rejects him? The Jewish leaders, the crowds, his own family at certain points. He must be fake. 
He, might, he must be false. But Jesus says, no, no one comes to me unless the Father draw him. This is something that must come from heaven. This, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, Peter. But my Father who is in heaven... This is something that's so far beyond the human consciousness that it has to be revealed to you in the spirit or there is not anything but rejection. We have, to remem- we have to remember this when we're in the world. We have to remember this. When we're out in the world, don't expect, right, people to come fawning to you. If they come fawning to you, there might be something wrong. Woe to those, woe to you when they love you, right? Jesus was not attached to these, these crowds. Jesus says that they will all be taught of God in verse 45 through 46. This is a quote from Isaiah 54, 50, uh, 54, 13, which talks about the new covenant. The whole chapter is a prophecy of the new covenant, what it's going to be like. Some of it is still not fulfilled. It's about the future heavenly kingdom uh, 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 of Christ. Some of it is being fulfilled now. And what he's quoting from now is, is in proof of what he just said. Nobody comes to me unless the Father draw him. In that verse, it says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. It's, it's very much like Jeremiah uh, uh, 31, where they, they, in the future covenant, he talks about how they will not say one to another, know the Lord, for they will all know me. Everybody who is truly saved and is coming to the Christ of the Bible is being drawn and taught by the Father. That's the explanation for why they come and why those people reject. There is, no, there is nothing here but confidence, faith, and absolute trust in the sovereignty of God. Uh, point number three. Jesus again points to himself as the bread of life, again, eternal and satisfying. And now this is where we get into some, some deeper waters for these people because they would have understood that. You know, Isaiah 54, verse 13, they knew, the, they knew uh, um, you know, in the synagogue they were, he was going to be among those people who knew the Old Testament scriptures. And then he goes on. I'm going to read uh, 47 through 59. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that no one may eat of it and so so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the Father that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. 
So whoever believes has eternal life. This is not for just a select few, right? Like a select few Jewish men. It's a select few based on faith, but it's not a select few based on understanding of the scriptures in the, in the sense of o- obeying the Old Testament and obeying all the rules and earning salvation, right? This is for anyone who believes. Verse 48 through 51, Jesus goes on to teach on what it means to believe and has already taken. So in other words, so he's teaching on faith now. He's talking about you don't believe in me. You need to believe. This is the works of God to believe on him who sent us. But what does it really mean to believe? We already said that it means to, what it means to believe is to actually have a right concept of Jesus to even begin with. If you believe in a miracle worker and a man who came to give you physical prosperity, then you're believing on the wrong Jesus. You have, you have, a, false, you have a false God. But what does it mean to believe in the right God? So we know it's false, but what's, what does it mean to actually have faith in Jesus Christ? What, is it ha- what does it actually mean to have his life in you? What does it actually mean to have eternal life? What does that even look like? And Jesus goes on to compare himself with manna, because this is what the people brought up. This is the whole concept, manna from heaven. And he speaks in parables, right? This is all a figure of speech, and they're not quite getting it. They're offended by this. Why is he speaking in this manner? In Matthew 13, verse 13, he says, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, that, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. He is separating out those who are being truly taught by God from those who are just following Jesus for the satisfaction of their own stomach. Jesus has to make this separation He's also speaking in this way to prove as a test, a test for his followers, as we'll see next week, that seems to hurt their faith at first, but that it strengthens it. So what does this have to do with believing? The whole context of feeding the 5,000. It has to do with nourishment. It has to do with appetites. It has to do with what you're relying on for your life. It has to do with what you look to when you're under pressure and I, I, need, I need strength. What do I look to? I grab my bread and I eat that and then I have strength to face that. Well, what is your bread? Is it physical bread or is it spiritual bread? It has everything to do with feasting. Jesus says, you want something to eat? Eat me. I am the bread that comes out, out of heaven. They don't get that, but it, it's something that we understand. I, there were so many verses that I wanted to bring into this, the ones or, that could be brought into this, but the ones that came to mind, Philippians 4, 11 through 13, not that Paul is talking about how he's so thankful that they gave him some sustenance, but that that's not what concerns him. He's only concerned about the credit that it would be to them because he says, not that I am speaking of being in need. I don't need your offering. For I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Another awesome verse. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus, they were trying to give him bread to eat. The woman at the well, right? You remember that? Jesus is refusing. It wasn't time to eat. It was time to minister. And he says, I, my food is to, to do the will of him who sent me. And then he goes on through 50, uh, verse 53. Coming back to the passage here. 53 all the way down through 58. Elaborating on this. Going deeper. And in the context of those who are listening, getting more and more offensive, really, to them. Because he, when, they're, when they're like doubting, they're like, is he really going to give us his flesh to eat? I mean, what is he really talking about? He doubles down and he goes deeper. If you don't eat my flesh, you have no life in you. If you do, you have eternal life and will be resurrected at the last day in verse 54. Verse 55, my flesh is true food and my and my blood is true drink. It's getting graphic here. Whoever eats abides in me. And now we're getting down to what it really means to have true faith. Abiding. Verse 57, as Jesus lives, so you will live with, li- with Christ's life in you. This is not like the bread that came to our fathers in the, in the form of manna. So that's the passage. Now I have the application, and I want to circle back around with some of these things and dig in just a little bit more and, and try to put it in the context of where we typically live because I think there's so much meat here. And I just wanted to exegete the passage and now apply it by God's grace. Uh, verse 37. Uh, All that the Father gives me will come. And I thought about the application for this because there's so many different ways that this could be taken. And I would never want to take this in a way that God doesn't intend. And I don't want to uh, confuse or discourage because the point of this passage is encouragement. It's encouragement. Ephesians 1 verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Our inheritance has been predestined. This is not to be a discouragement at all. This is something that is supposed to give us absolute boldness and confidence because what what happens a lot of time when we face the world, this has at least been in my experience, there comes a pressure to do one or two, one, two, or even three things. Either one, respond in anger when people don't come to the Lord. Like, I presented you this, this simple gospel and you still don't get it, right? Well, all that the Father gives me will come. No one comes, but the Father draws me. It's time to get down on your knees and start praying for this person, that the Father would draw them and open up their minds so that they can understand what you're saying. There's another temptation, to be discouraged. Be like, look, I used to, I used to go uh, door to door and knocking on doors. Nobody wanted the gospel. They all felt like they already knew everything about Jesus, right? They, they didn't know anything about Jesus, but they, they all felt like they did. They were like, get away from my door. Probably door-to-door witnessing, whatever. Some might think that's a bad way of doing it anyway, but maybe some people think it's a great th- way of doing it. But I was presenting the gospel. How many people came? Street witnessing. How many people came? My friends and family. How many people came? Right? 
of those in my family that aren't saved? How many people have I really led to the Lord? All right? Compared to how many people that I witnessed to, not that many. That can be a discouragement, especially for somebody who's walking in the gospel and really seeking, and really seeking to share the gospel with all their friends. It can, it can start to wear on you, right? You don't have to let that wear on you because you can remember Jesus' words that all that the Father gives me will come. Another temptation is to start trying to become more appealing, right? I was at a church that was very super-duper conservative, and then it started to go more contemporary in an effort to be a little bit more culturally contextualized. And there was a temptation, at least on me, when I encountered people, to try to be more winsome. That's a good thing in and of itself, right? You just, you don't want to be, you don't want to be obnoxious, but we do have an offensive message. So what's that going to look like, right? It's going to look like people getting offended. And there's a temptation to be like, well, I'll just emphasize the positive. Jesus came to love. I'll just, I won't, I won't confront them with their sin. I'll talk about sin later when they're ready. And there's that, that pool to just start to compromise the message and present a gospel that's watered down to try to get people to come. You don't have to try to get people to come. They're pressing into the kingdom. They're coming. All that the Father gives me will come. They're coming, right? Your prayer is that, is that you will be used to bring these people in because that's the mystery of the gospel in that he uses our persuasion somehow. He doesn't need our persuasion. Sometimes we, we, we see that and we're like, I gotta be more persuasive now. I gotta hit, I've gotta hit it from a different angle. I gotta go back to the science. I gotta go back to like creation versus evolution and I gotta learn all. It's like, what? We got the simple gospel right here. That's what the people need to hear. You don't need to compromise. Another, another temptation you could fall into once you've witnessed and they've rejected is, I said the wrong thing. Shame on me. They didn't come to the Lord and the enemy will love that. He just attacks it. He puts it in your mind, right? You were wrong. You did it wrong. You said the wrong thing. You were too harsh. You were too nice. You were too unclear. You weren't speaking in a way that they could understand. All those things going through your mind. Just stop. The fact that you said anything at all about Christ in, this, in today's society, in this atmosphere, is, is, is a huge, huge step of faith. You have stepped out and you have spoken of Christ. You may not have gotten the whole gospel out. It may not have sounded good. Come on. What does that matter? There are people who have come to the Lord and they were like, oh, you were the one that led me to the Lord. You're like, really, me? I was just like, oh, Jesus, this, that. And I don't even remember what I said. I, I, I was just trying to block it out because it sounded so weak. And they're like, but you, you were the one that was the, you know, and they're telling you because the Spirit used you. The Spirit used what you said to bring them to Christ. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked run, though no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You see this all through Christ's ministry. He's as bold as a lion. 
Point application number two. We have the assurance of suffering and rejection. So how is that encouraging? In Ezekiel 3 uh, verse 7, Jesus, uh, uh, God tells Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to these people. You're commissioned as a prophet of God. Praise the Lord. Oh, one little detail. They're not going to listen to your message. That's kind of, we've kind of, got, we've kind of got both going on. We've got all that the Father will give me that will come, but we also have broad as the way that leads to destruction. We have an assurance that most people will likely, unless there's a gigantic revival and God make it so, most people will reject you. Mm-hmm. And most people rejected Jesus. Most people rejected Paul and Peter. Philippians 3.10 says, Paul's talking here, should have gotten some more verses for the context, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his suffering. He wants to be like Jesus in his suffering because within that context, we have such intimacy and unity with Christ as we walk like him in the same sufferings that he went through. He's looking down from heaven and saying, yeah, me too. That's my son. It's my daughter. Me too. Acts 5.41, one of my favorite verses then they left the presence of the council. This is after they were beaten for preaching the gospel, the disciples, now apostles. Rejoicing, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's a, totally, that's a total paradigm shift for me. Suffering, a lot of times we're like, well, maybe we did something wrong because they rejected us so bad that they beat us up. No. Count it all joy when you fall into these things. Point... Application number three, are you taught by God? Verse 45, have you personally read and believed and understood the Jesus of the New Testament? Are you taught not intellectually, but through the Spirit, understanding the gravity of who Jesus is? Have you been taught of God? Ask God, ask, cry out to him. It's like, Lord, I've been saved for how many years? But Lord, teach me, teach me who you really are. All of us, no matter how long we've been saved, need to know more of who Christ is. We need to know who he is, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and our spirits. Knowing who he is, are you taught by God? Point number four. This has the idea of nourishment and satisfaction. 48 through 59, Jesus is, ap- is the absolute source of life and nourishment. One of my favorite passages is John 15, and it's the exact same kind of thing, where I am the, bro- br- I am the vine and you are the branches. The nourishment of the vine goes to the branches, and that's where the source of the energy of the fruit, that's where the ability to bear fruit comes from. It comes from the vine. We are the branches. It's the same thing. All life mentally, emotionally, and spiritually comes from him. We feast on him. And what does that bring us? It brings us, among other things, satisfaction. That's point number five. Verse 55. The only thing in life is, that's ever going to satisfy is Christ. You could go and tra- chase these, all, all these other things. The success in the eyes of the world and what the world calls success will leave you feeling empty and dry and completely unsatisfied. 
And if you're a Christian and you, and you fall for the lies of the world and you walk in that, past, in that path, you'll realize that you are deceived the moment you stand in his presence. And everything that you did will be burned up. 1 Corinthians 3, all the works, all the works that you did for you, all the works that you did out of a selfish motive will be burned up. The only thing that, that, that remains is what we did for Christ. And that's what satisfies doing things for Christ. The hymn, one of the hymns that I love the most, at least the words, uh, Helen Lemel, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There's nothing that gives both desire and fulfillment at the same time like Jesus. Nothing. Point number six, the nature of true faith is abiding. This whole passage is pushing toward this crescendo, and this is the apex of what he's going for. It's the climax. Verse 57 and 57, uh, 56 and 57. Staying in a relationship with Christ, abiding with Christ near the shepherd is what true faith is. It's not an intellectual understanding or a belief and say, well, I've evaluated the evidence and now I'm ready to believe this. It may start there. That's good. But that's not true faith. That's understanding the truth. You just understood the truth. Okay, now it's time to step out in faith, true faith. Where now, everything that you are as a person, the life spring of your life and your soul comes from Jesus Christ and his spirit living inside you. You abide with him. To abide means to stay. Stay with Jesus. Be satisfied with him. Feed on him. Jude one twenty one. keep yourself in the love of God. It's living loved, right? And that brings me to point, Number seven, as Jesus lives, you will live. Do you want to know what your life will look like? If you, if you do these things, it'll look like Jesus' life. It may not look like it in all the cultural trappings, right? But it'll look like him in all the spiritual ways. How Jesus, his food was to do the will of his father. Again, John 4, 34. Rather than chasing bread like people, like a typical American, he wanted to do what God wanted to do, and that was his satisfaction. But can you imagine if Jesus was a typical selfish American, always going from town to town looking for food? Where are we going to eat now? We got a good place in the capitalist? I, I, you know, and it was all like culinary in nature. Like Jesus was always dividing um, artisan breads, Right? Like it was all about comfort and it was all about like, it was all about, when you talk to Christians, sometimes it's all about, you know, these kind of things, their hobbies and their, and their, and their luxury and all these things. And it's like, that's fine. This, this stuff isn't evil to enjoy. But what is, what, what are you living for? What are we, what are we doing if we're always thinking about money, for instance? And Jesus could always, be, you know, Philip was talking last week or, or the week before last, Philip's talking about money. This is right on, right on the cusp of a massive miracle. Philip is talking about money. Money. This is one of the things that convicted me in this passage. What am I thinking about a lot of the times? Thinking about my budget. Thinking about money. Thinking about, thinking about opportunities and money. Well, how much time are you thinking of that compared to how much time are you thinking about 
Christ, who is the true bread. You need money to buy bread, but Christ is the true bread. You don't need money to buy that. You, that the currency of the kingdom is faith, right? And true faith is abiding in Him and finding your satisfaction in Him. What would your life look like if you were abiding in Christ and walking as Jesus walked? Because in verse 57, it says His life will be in you, right? So what does it look like in your life to walk as Jesus? What would it look like at your work if you were walking as Jesus? We would have the mind, will, and the emotions of the spirit instead of the mind, will, and emotions of the world. Obsessed with to-do lists, worried about things that are about to happen, struggling with um, resentment toward the people who are around us, focused on self and our comfort, comfort, comfort. Everything that goes with being an American, right? Perfect temperature, the perfect coffee, the perfect food, the perfect lunch, right? All those things consuming our minds. But instead of that, what would it look like if you stepped out and said, no, I'm going I'm to live in the Spirit now. I'm going to walk like Jesus walked. So now when I walk into, a, in the, into the presence of somebody who is not saved, my thought is, how can I talk about the Lord? How can I share with them? And when they reject me, how am I going to respond to that? With love. I'm going to live loved. Now as I walk to work, I'm praying if I have no opportunities to witness doesn't mean I can't pray. It doesn't mean that I can't feast on Christ's presence. It doesn't mean that I can't be meditating on Scripture and just having the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know, when I, I, I've been noticing lately over the past couple of weeks, part of my personal testimony, I've been praying about every little decision, every little decision, right? That just God would give me wisdom, not that God would like give me a sign that I'd have to do certain things, right? If that happens, fine. If that doesn't happen, that's not the point. The point is intimacy, intimacy with God, intimacy with Christ and His Spirit. As now, it becomes a oneness. It becomes a oneness, just like in John 17, we're going to get there, his high priestly uh, prayer, when he says, let, let us be one, I in them and they in me, complete oneness, so that you don't know where Jesus starts and you begin. It's an absolute growing together where you are part of the body of Christ. You are a representative of him and an extension of him because his spirit lives in you. So that when people are talking to you, they're essentially talking to the Holy Spirit because you're so filled with the spirit that that's what comes out right away. Bible, truth, love, Joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, all these things. The mind, will, and the emotion of the Spirit and unity with Christ. So that's the message. And as the worship team comes up, I just want to just say how much I, I, I've been praying for you and praying for us as a body because... We don't get anywhere unless the Holy Spirit comes and applies this, this to our life. This could just be, I don't know, this may have sounded like nonsense to some of you, right? Just nonsensical ramblings, right? And if that's the case, cry out to God for wisdom. Come to Him humbly and say, Lord, I thought I knew who you were. I know nothing of who you are. Come to Him and ask 
for the true bread that comes out of heaven and for the true life. And if you're saved and you're not really walking with him, come to him and beg for his presence, beg for his love. Seek him above anything else in your life. This comes into communion. Communion, communion is not a representation this is not a representation of communion. Communion is a representation of this, right? And so as we take communion, just think about that. I'm sure Pastor Colin's going to be saying more about this, so I'll, I'll forbear. But I love you guys. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.